Happy New Year! Feliz Año Nuevo! Hola, hola, welcome back. I want to kick off this new year feeling less guilty. My mantra last year was let go of perfection. And this year, I want to focus on letting go of perception. I think a lot of times I let other people's perception drive my decisions. Like, for example, sometimes when I tell people that I have help with my son, I worry they might think I'm a bad mother. Or if I don't put out an episode of this podcast every week, will people think I'm not dedicated enough? These are the things that are going through my mind. The truth is I'm tired, not only physically from raising an infant, but emotionally from caring too much about the perception of me as a mother, a woman, a professional, and all the other titles. I'm constantly asking myself, am I working hard enough? Am I strong enough, fit enough, good enough? And though I realize that this journey of letting go of perception will never be easy, and I probably won't kick ass at it all the time, I have to at least try. That's why I wanted to start this year off with an episode about the decisions that we often don't make for ourselves because of our own guilt and how they might be perceived. You know what else? So many times I have watched courageous, driven, intelligent people walk away from something they truly need to grow because they're afraid to make the monetary investment. And I know because I've been there many times. I catch myself second-guessing decisions that have made me and my life better just because I spent money on them. And I like to call these conundrums rich white lady decisions. So joining me on this conversation is Tangia Renee Estrada. She's an empowerment and transformation coach, a speaker, and fellow podcaster who helps people embrace their inner power. So open up your mind and get ready to let go of some perceptions. You're listening to Diferente. Estás escuchando Diferente, the bilingual podcast where we celebrate and explore the complexities of living life between two or more cultures. I'm your host, Maribel Quesada-Smith, a producer and creative consultant from Mexico City, living in the U.S., who loves hip-hop and cumbia. I created Diferente to learn, laugh, and grow alongside you with stories and interviews that relate to the bicultural experience. Let's get started. Welcome to Diferente Tangia. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yes. We've been talking about things like this for a while, you and I, because, you know, we've been friends, we've worked together on different things. And now I'm so happy to actually get to explore this topic with you and our audience because it's been on my mind for a long time. And that is making these rich white lady decisions, as I like to call them. <laughs> and just, I want to put the disclaimer out there, like this is not to, to make a dig on any rich white woman. This is just about a feeling and an idea that basically came across to me when I was dealing with certain doubts in my own career and life. And I want to explain that a little bit. So what I mean when I say rich white lady decisions is, When I start to feel like it's time to invest in myself or my business or my career, and there's either money involved or more time, there's always this feel feeling of guilt. I realize that it's because I think that there are certain things in life that are only done by certain types of people, or I used to think that. I don't think that anymore, but for a long time, I don't know why I had this idea that like, For example, therapy. When I was a kid, that was not 
anything that we would talk about. Like in my family, we didn't really discuss therapy. I don't know if they did in your family. No, never. Exactly. So, <laughs> and I don't know about your family, but in mine, I remember distinctly my mom saying something like, ay, eso es cosa de los gringos. Yeah. That's, a, that's an American <laughs> yeah. thing. Like, it's we don't a, do it's that. It's a white people thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and especially, yeah, specifically, right? A white people thing and people with money because... Yeah who's going to spend a hundred or more dollars an hour <laughs> talking to a stranger, right? It seemed like a crazy thing to do, ironically. Or I used to feel ashamed when I started seeing a counselor in college and I wouldn't tell my family about it because I thought like they're going to think I'm weird. Yeah, that's when I, I first went to a counselor as well in college because... It's like the best time to do it. Yeah, well, I found out... <laughs> That it was included in our tuition that you had, we had so yes. much money available to go to like this student services place and you could get counseling for quote unquote free. And I was like, I thought about it for like a full year before I actually went to an actual appointment. And I was like, I cannot tell anybody. <laughs> everybody's <laughs> gonna, I was embarrassed. Yeah. Everybody's going to think I'm crazy. Like. You know, it, when we talked about therapy growing up, it was in jest. It was to make fun. It was like, you know, these, oh, these these crazy people have so much money that they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and so they pay strangers to listen to their problems. It's so stupid. right? Yeah. And I think it was in TV that I used to see people going to get counseling, but it used to always be white people that I would watch doing that on TV, like on sitcoms or, mm -hmm. or dramas. And so, again, it reinforced the thought that it was only for certain types of people. And it really held me back for a long time because I didn't really work on some of my issues because of that. And I know that for a fact it has held back some of my family members because they because either... you know them. <laughs> yes, either still feel the same way or they just can't get over that, like, shame of having mm -hmm. to get help from a stranger. Yeah, I mean, I, before college, I thought it, I wouldn't have even considered it. Um, and I don't remember like what was the thing that finally made me do it. I just know I was in college and I was like, I'm going to give this a try. And of course I didn't tell anybody for like years, years, <laughs> but I remember being in high school and, um, I went to a, a more affluent high school than the community that I lived in. So we, I was commuted across town in a very large high school of several thousand students there were less than a hundred of us that were students of color. Wow. And we all knew each other, of course, right? We had a, our, <laughs> yeah. a little spot in the school where we all hung out. The support and, group. Right. <laughs> we were all friends. Um, and, you know, so we were immersed in a different economic class. I mean, and I would say that that, that neighborhood at that time was still middle class, but definitely the upper end of middle class. So they had like the more kids money. that would that would take long vacations, maybe go to Europe in the summer, things right. like that. Right. Summer camps and their parents would buy them a car, um, you know, as soon as they turned 16. And not a hoopty like I got. I got a car too, but it was a hoopty. Of course we had friends that, you know, in school that were white and we were cool with. And because of that, we knew that their parents were in therapy because they would get prescription drugs like Prozac and Xanax. And things like things like that, and their their kids would turn around and sell those things to other students Dang. in the school. 
that was going on already i feel oh, like yeah. i was sheltered because i didn't know about that until way later in life oh yeah i mean they would sell uh, adderall a lot of them were receiving i don't know adderall i think is for add yeah yeah so that's how we were first exposed on a more personal level to the concept of like therapy and we would make fun of them because we'd be like all these white people with all this money their parents are all crazy <laughs> Yes. And I think that it's also so it's not just a race thing or a people of color thing. It's also a cultural issue, for example. Yeah, economic. Right. So either economic, cultural, race. In my culture, we are very big on natural medicine and healing medicine or alternative medicine. And so when my parents were told, for example, like, oh, maybe you could consider an antidepressant or you know, whether it be for me or for for whoever, they thought it was the wildest thing they've ever been told. I do remember specifically, like I had to take Soloft at some point. I think it was early years in college. And my mom was just devastated because she was like, I don't want you to take drugs. I don't want, I just, she was so, so afraid and worried about the side effects, which is, I think that that's fair. I, I don't like drugs either necessarily I don't you know I try to go the more natural way but I do remember my sister-in-law who is white (laughs) telling me at some point you know what there's nothing wrong with getting some extra help if you need it because sometimes you're you know the chemistry is just not right and the only thing that can help can be a prescription drug and that's okay there's no shame in that a lot of the time you know it can be temporary it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life Some people do need that, but not everybody. So she made me feel a little bit more secure, I guess, in in the way that I needed it to be back then. But she was white, so she had a different view on it. And and I'm not even saying that she was raised to see it that way, but it's just, it was interesting to me. Like, culturally, we just looked at it very differently. And that was one of the reasons why I started thinking, like, okay, so... It's a cultural issue at also. It's not just about money because the insurance would pay for it, right? And and just like that, there are other things that have happened in my life where I've been um, face-to-face with a difficult decision or a challenging situation where I have to make a big decision in my life, whether it's a big change, a career move, whatever, and making the riskier choice or the more, the more expensive one makes me feel like I'm trying to be like a rich white lady. <laughs> no, like, I mean, another, another example, coaching. And you're a coach. I am a coach. So maybe you can speak to this a little bit better. Don't you feel like sometimes people hold themselves back when it comes to coaching because not only, it, yes, it, it's, it's an investment, but it's like this, we have this extra layer of I'm not good enough. I don't need this because I don't deserve it. I should just be able to bootstrap and do it on my own. That's the definitely the Mexican mentality. So when I hired my coach for the first time, I had all kinds of like regret and weird feelings about it at the beginning because I was just like, I don't know why I'm spending all this money. This is this is so scary. I'm am I crazy? I I didn't even want to tell anybody. I was embarrassed. Yeah. So I think, so in my coaching practice, so I'm a, a, a mindset mentor and, and wellness coach, and I work exclusively with women. And the vast majority of my clients are women of color. And at some point in, 
in coaching, we are going to have to deal with and call out directly the beliefs they have that are cultural, that have somehow been a block or held them back. And, and the reason for that, I think, is that so there's, there's so many layers to oppression in any society. In Western American society, it's about gender and it is about race, right? And so you have, when you're working with women, you have that first layer of how women are socialized to believe that they are supposed to be. You're told that thing growing up that, you know, little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. And you're just like your currency in the world as a woman is to be pretty and to be thin and to be nice, right? And, and those are the things that you're supposed to be. So we're sort of socialized, not sort of, we're definitely socialized in this way that is about shrinking ourselves. Little boys aren't told to be nice. <laughs> They're not told to be thin. Well, They're nowadays they are. I feel like we're doing better. Maybe a little that. more, maybe a little more. <laughs> but, you know, when I was growing up, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Right. So we come into adulthood with this underlying, often unconscious idea of having to be quiet and not get what we need and not say what we need um, because that's not the nice thing to do. Like, it's not nice to be like, <laughs> I have a sh I have a shitty relationship with my mom. You can't say that. It's not nice to be like, hey, dad, I, you abandoned me when I was, you know, 12 or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's, it's not nice to call those things out because it makes other people uncomfortable. And your job as a woman is to make people comfortable, right? Yeah. So you have that. But then when you're a person of color, then you're also dealing with the added um, racism that you've been subject to for your whole life, probably. Like in, in your case... You're Mexican, right? So the, the narrative in this country around Mexican people is that you're janitors, right? You're the janitor. <laughs> yeah, we're you like can, the blue collar hard yes, worker. Yeah. You can be mechanics, you can be janitors, you can pick apples, you can, you know, do that clean kind houses. of work. You can clean houses. Or work construction, things, right? a lot of things like that. Right, but that's, that's it for you. You're a servant. That's your job. Well, that's what society there. thinks, but I will say that's never what my family put on me. No, of course not. Your family doesn't put that on you. Like these are the subtle messages that are thrown at you every single day. Yeah. Right. And at a certain point, you do internalize some of that stuff. Even if you you live in a family that is constantly trying to build you up and pushing you to do more, it's next to impossible to not internalize some of that stuff. So at some point in coaching, that stuff is going to come up because it's the thing where you're like, well, I'm not supposed to be able to afford this. Like I'm just yeah. supposed to be a maid. That's, that's what, that's the expectation of the world. And so you get to a point where you're like, I definitely can't afford this. I definitely can't do this, but it feels like you're not supposed to. Hmm. So I think that's a big piece of it that we have to deal with the unconscious stuff that we've internalized over the years, just as a function of existing in the world. I see what you're saying, but I think like, do you think that it was subconscious for me? Because like I said, I grew up in a family where it was, where I was pushed to always think big and, and definitely supported to be whatever I wanted to be. I think that there's no clear answer. I, like it's not, 
you know, what motivates you to do the things that you do are as unique as you are. And so maybe the, the social narrative around who you're supposed to be as a brown woman in America played a role. Was it the main motivation? That's, I couldn't say. I don't know. Yeah, that's the it, weird thing. It could like, be. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. Like, you, when you grow up and you're surrounded by people who you think are very supportive of you, and in reality, they, you know, for the most part, yes, I've had that. Having a college degree, having gone to business school, you know, completing a master's program, living in different places, being able to navigate different careers, you would think that that would say to me, hey, man, you got this. Like, you deserve this. You are prepared. Don't feel like an imposter. I mean, not necessarily (laughs) because the people around you are supportive within their level of capacity to be supported. So if you receive the message growing up that therapy was for crazy people, that's because that, that they didn't have experience with that. So they just made some assumptions. I mean, it's a very human thing to do. It's not wrong. It's just how we behave as humans. Right. And so they were supportive at the level that they could support you, but they don't know what they don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So they were supportive in their own limitations. That's true. That's exactly how it is. We only support people within our own limitations. And that's why expanding your networks and getting out and experimenting and trying new things and finding what, what is really meaningful for you is so important. You have to get outside of your own comfort zone. So therapy was outside of that comfort zone. Therapy, coaching. You know what else? Philanthropy. So like I grew up with this idea of, yes, being kind is important. Yes, giving money when you go to church on Sunday is important. But I never necessarily really understood what philanthropy was until I grew up. And I went to live in D.C. A friend of mine, her name's Catherine, she taught me about philanthropy. Again, white woman. Right. She was raised to believe that she should donate about 10% of her paycheck. And that's a lot of money to a lot of people. And so when she told me that, I was blown away. Like, wait, what? You give away 10% of your paycheck? And she's like, yeah. And she made it so normal. Like, she kind of brought it back down to earth because she, I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily see her as someone who was like super rich or anything. And so she made me feel like, oh, if she's able to do it, maybe I should do it too. And slowly I started to learn about it and, you know, finding causes to donate to, things like that. She taught me how to find out if the nonprofits that I was donating to were using the money correctly and Mm -hmm. how the money was being dispersed. And like these little things that you don't even think about or people often say, well, if I give money, how are they going to use it? Or who knows how it's going to be, you know, invested. And so she kind of normalized it. And it's because of her that I have a different mentality around philanthropy, not because of my family. And I met her because I went to college, I met, met with different people, I networked. So had I not left my immediate circle, I might have never learned about this. But again, a lesson from another white woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and these are things that I, knew, I, I know for a fact that people often in our culture, especially in the Latino culture, are often kind of like on the fence about. Yes, we, we are very kind people and as a culture, we are very helpful to each other. But raising money in the Latino community can be very challenging. And I say that because I've been in that position where I've had to ask people to donate money. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have two. Before I came into coaching, I was in public policy, nonprofit, politics. I raised a lot of money for <laughs> causes. 
um, impacting marginalized communities and, and raising money truthfully from the Latino community was tough. Mostly it was tough because it was a longer time frame. You had to really slow down, give everybody a chance to think about it and get up to speed and make sure they felt comfortable and understood what the money was going to be used for. Because you're, you're right, you know, culturally, we don't necessarily do that. We not, will not like make a way. meal, right. yeah. Like we'll make a meal for for the neighbor or the 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 older person down the street who doesn't mm-hmm. have any family. We'll watch their kids. We'll give them a ride. We'll donate clothes. But when it comes to actually writing a check, yeah, that's it's different. I feel like that has been a different. Yeah, it's just a different. And it, and it does, of course, become you know uh, it. It depends on. The, you know, the, the culture within the individual family. And, you know, I'm, I'm biracial, you know, I'm black and Latina. And so I, you know, I, I have some insight into that. Our family was just different because my family is very Christian. <laughs> and so they um, raised us with this belief about giving back, right? The 10%, you have to give back 10%. And so I was familiar with it, but I'm also an American Latino, you know, like I'm not from, I'm not from another, another country initially. And, and our family in the United States goes back to generations and generations. I think all of those things play a role. And, and when we think about where we come from, it does very much feel like rich white ladies are a totally (laughs) different breed of person. (laughs) Like when you're like, (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) And when you, you know, when you start making your way up the economic ladder, and I don't want to make it sound like I come from poverty. I don't like my, my family is very middle class, but when you start making your own money and you make your own decisions and you are exposed to new experiences and new people, you know, when I went into politics, I didn't know that my world was going to open up in the way that it did. I was flying back and forth to DC all the time. (laughs) You know, I was in all these new circles being exposed to all of these new people. And a lot of them were what I would consider quote unquote rich white ladies. And I had to like really take a step back and not be so caught up in the difference and make myself be like, well, you can learn something here. Like you just need to take this as a new experience and learn from it what you can. And you have to at some point, I told myself I have to let go of what I thought the world was to allow for what it could be now. Yeah. Right. And the thing is like the reason why I labeled them rich white lady decisions is because I have learned these things from white women Mm -hmm. and actually they haven't necessarily been rich, but they have been white. And when I make the decisions for myself, like I said, when it comes to investing or growing and it seems like a stretch, I relate that to something that a rich white woman would do. Like a rich white woman can afford a nanny. A rich white woman gets a, a facial. A rich white woman pays for a coach. Mm-hmm. Those are the the things in my mind. Like, oh, Maribel, wh- what are you trying to do here? Like, that's for rich white women, right? <laughs> Hell yeah, rich white women, you go, girl. Of course, invest in yourself. That's awesome. But guess what? When they're getting ahead and they're making headway in their careers, they're making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like how I told my husband when I decided to get a coach. I said, you know what? I do feel like a lot of the times we talk about how we're being held back. 
oh, I'm a woman of color, so it's harder for me, and you know, in certain things. And yes, it, it, it is. But at the same time, there comes a point where I have to also make an investment in myself. And if I don't even believe that I'm good enough to get a coach and invest in my career and my growth, then who's going to? And here's the thing. A rich white woman would be like, hell yeah, I'm going to invest X amount of money in my business and my growth because I'm worth it, because I'm, I need it, and because I'm, you know, I know that I want to grow. So if she can make the decision, why can't I? Right, you absolutely can, but that's a paradigm shift. You have to get there first. And I, I think that if you, you come from a place where that just isn't done, for whatever reason, maybe it's not an economic thing, it just isn't done in your family, um, it's just not done where you come from. Do you think it's because we're very much about pulling yourself up? Through, you know, with your bootstraps, like making making things on your own. And, you know, even in fundraising, think about this in startups, in the startup culture, which is very predominantly white male. I have learned that a lot of businesses who are small business, like a lot of small business owners who are Latino, they don't even know that they can raise money through venture capital. Like they they believe that they have to do it all on their own. And the reason why a lot of our businesses stay small in the people of color community is because we don't think growth through venture capital. We want to do bootstrapping. We want to do it on our own through our family. I don't, I, I think it's, it's not black and white. I think it's very nuanced. And I think that. Oh, no pun intended, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that the reality is, is, is we can't deny what systemic racism has created for people. And it's not that we want to bootstrap it, we want to do it all by ourselves. It's that we don't know any other way because yeah. historically we've been locked out. And are things changing? Yes. Is it better for my generation? Absolutely. But that doesn't negate the fact that historically speaking, People of color, especially black and indigenous people, have been systematically locked out of opportunities and resources to grow. And so that belief that you can't depend on the larger society to have help you has been true. It's yeah. it's true. <laughs> and but, so yeah. I yeah, do we have to take responsibility for ourselves and decide? to use what's available to us now to the best of our ability, sure. But it's a paradigm, it's a massive paradigm shift if you weren't raised around that. So I think that somebody who grew up with more wealth, we're, we're using the faceless example here as of, of a rich white lady, right? <laughs> they probably have grown up in a context where they were aware of these things being available. That's true. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. They know about philanthropy. They know about coaching. Yes. It and was, their parents maybe use that stuff. Too. Maybe it was their parents. It was yeah. just in the culture available for them. For somebody who wasn't, didn't have access to that, like you don't know what you don't know. And so it it's becomes for a lot of people, people of color in particular, a huge paradigm shift to get to a point where you look around and now you have, you have access to things that generations of people before you didn't have access to before or even your immediate family currently has never had access to maybe you're the first one it's a lot of information and it's a lot of like 
new stuff. And so it takes some time for you to get to a place that you finally got to that you're like, well, they're doing it. Why can't I do that too? Like, why don't I deserve that level of support? But it takes time. Like you didn't come to that conclusion overnight. There were some experiences. You had to work through it. You had to observe. You had to see how it was impacting other people. Nowadays, it seems like everyone with a camera and a microphone is a quote, content creator. Don't get me wrong, I love that the internet has allowed so many people to test their creativity, but when it comes to your brand making an impact, wouldn't you rather partner with a seasoned media expert? Because your brand is more than a business, it's a story. So let me help you tell that story. I'm a producer and creative consultant who understands that your online presence should be working for your brand, not against your bottom line. If you're ready to create online video and audio content in English or in Espanol that builds trust and turns your audience into loyal customers, go to maribelqs.com forward slash ready and let me know. I still don't necessarily think I deserve these things. I mean, there are so many decisions that I've made in the last probably two years where I tell my friend, Katie, who's white, and I, I told her about my terminology, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I just, I don't know, like, like, I feel like that's a rich white lady thing to do. And she goes, well, look at you on your rich white lady path. Every time I tell her like, oh, hey, I got a coach. She's like, look at you on your rich white lady. <laughs> and because it's, you know, we just, we joke about it because she knows that it has held me back in the past. And it's almost like, okay, I'm doing it. Yes, I'm making these decisions. Yes, I got a coach. Uh, you know, I, I got a doula for my birthing process with my son, which is another thing that I had no idea about and a white lady told me. So I made the decisions, but that still does not take the shame away. There's still this like feeling of, oh, I don't want to tell people. There's a bit of a stigma and, and maybe even me thinking like, I don't deserve this. I don't know where it comes from because I can't get rid of it. That's the problem. But yeah, has I, it helped me? Yes. Like, sure. Have, I mean, have these decisions make my life better? Absolutely. I mean, what you believe about what you deserve as a person, that's, that's like a deep seated thing that you have to take the time to really examine and understand. And, and it, there's a lot of things that contribute to these underlying beliefs. So where the that feeling of undeservedness comes from for you, I couldn't tell you. I mean, that would be probably several weeks of... That would probably go <laughs> with a therapist, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should talk to my therapist about that. <laughs> um, but we all have it, right? We all have these worldviews about what we think about the world that we developed at a time when we were young and impressionable and needed to develop out of some kind of survival tactic. What has been one of those rich white lady decisions for you? I've had them a lot. I, I think the first time was when I went to therapy for the first time in college. And that was like, that was a huge leap for me. I decided to go to graduate school and get a master's degree. That was, I wasn't embarrassed by it, but it felt like I was really outside of my comfort zone. And it felt like, you know, I'm the oldest child in my family. So I was the first. And, and now I'm not the first, the only one to have a master's degree. But at the time, it just felt like, is this for me? And then, you know, when, when I was in college, this is an undergrad, my, my degree was political science. 
And so already as, as a woman of color, you're in the minority on a college campus. And then in the political science department, I was a super minority. But there were many times I was the only person of color in any of my classes. And then same thing in graduate school. I got to graduate school and there were many times I was the only person of color in any of my classes. And so there was a lot of like, am I supposed to be here? Now that, that idea didn't come from my family. It came from society telling me that as a woman of color, like that's not for me. And so I had to battle through that. I think more recently, when I first got a coach, for my business coach, which was, this is a few years ago now, um, I ghosted. I ghosted oh. it completely. <gasps> <laughs> like I paid the additional money and then I ghosted it because I didn't, I was like, I don't, no, 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 this isn't for me. Like, wow. like no, 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 we don't do this. you know and I wasted that money um so that was another time I think more recently I find myself having these thoughts like as you say these rich white lady moments where I'm like oh wait that I'm not supposed to do that because I'm pregnant and I'm having my first kid and I it's not something I really have considered I, I didn't plan on having children but economically I'm in a place where I can make different decisions than other people in my family. I can choose the hospital and like going through this thing of like interviewing doctors. I didn't know that that was a thing. Yes, me neither. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Until I had to do it. Absolutely. And guess what? A a white lady told me I should probably change doctors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I like started researching and, and like, you know, I chose a hospital that's like considered like the the ritzy hospital and I have access to like doulas and midwives. And like these are the questions that that my OBGYN is asking me. Like, do you want a midwife? Do you want a doula? You know, these are the th- <laughs> and, and it feels kind of jarring to me, first of all, because I never planned on having children. But also because these were things that still deep in my psyche, I thought were like for white people. I didn't, yeah. I, I realized like here I am a full grown adult and I still have some of these limiting ideas about what is not for me because of the color of my skin. And now you have to worry about who's going to help you right after the baby is right. born. And I remember having that conversation a, a couple months ago with you where you were like, hey, um, so on another note, <laughs> what, how, how the hell are you, are you working right now? How are you doing this? Do, do you have help? And I said, I, don't you remember? I yes. said, yes. And I, my face got kind of weird because I was like, yes, we have help. Because I don't even like, I don't even like, I, I'm not embarrassed that we have help. It just sounds weird for me to say we have a nanny. And that's the title, right? That, that's right. what they do. Right. But for me to say that, that's that's like the epitome of rich white lady decision. It really is, right? And that's the way you always see it on TV. It's like this, you know, wealthy woman in Manhattan in her high-rise penthouse. With the oh, Hispanic <laughs> nanny. <laughs> right? That's what you always see. But honestly, when you said that, I felt so relieved because... In my family, the way that childcare was always handled is it was like an auntie or a grandparent did it. Yeah. Well, I don't live close enough to any of my family to be like, 
here, take the kid for yeah, two hours. I, yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, and I am moving <laughs> just to accommodate that. So I was like, I got to figure something out. And I was like really worried about what are the options. It And it honestly didn't feel like that was an option to me until you said it. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there are normal people like me that do this. I mean, I'm not wealthy. <laughs> Well, you know what's funny? Okay, so I have to say this. What defines rich, though? Because that's one thing that I've been struggling with. Because I, I, I'm the first one to be like, oh, no, we're not rich. But right. here's, here's me having this conversation. <laughs> when I talked to the attorney and, and we're, get, we're putting an estate plan together, and the first thing I said to him was, look, we're not rich, but... <laughs> and, and the truth is, like, you don't have to be rich to have an estate plan. In fact, right. everyone should everyone because should. it's so important. You don't have to be rich to have a coach, and you don't have to be rich to have somebody help you with your child. But you do have to have disposable income to a certain yes. extent. You have to have the money to be able to pay for these things. So what defines rich? Because I'm quick to be like, no, I'm not rich. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I mean, because it's, it's like there's the stigma on top of on top of making rich white lead the decisions. I also don't want to feel like I'm telling people that I'm rich because I'm right. a, what the hell? Like, what's wrong with that anyway? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that. Again, like we come from such a different place that that feels very far outside of the comfort zone. And and the truth is, is am I wealthy? No, <laughs> but I'm in a better place economically than many of my own family members. Yeah. Right. I think to me, rich means like you you know fly private and like i don't know like yeah. to me rich is like you have a butler you you fly private and i think maybe it's all relative maybe it depends on what your view is of the world and that defines what you think rich is yeah it does it, i think it definitely does i mean to me rich is anybody that has more money than me so. <laughs> <laughs> but there are people that have more money than me that don't pay to have their child taken care of i tell yeah. you that much i know for a fact there are people that have more money than me that don't pay for a coach. Yeah, true. True. So I feel like that's why there's this like disconnect of where is it the money that's holding you back from making these decisions that are important to your life or is it your mentality? It's your mentality is what it is. Like, again, to be fair, like you said, you do have to have some disposable income to be able to make some of these decisions. But it does still feel strange to me sometimes to spend money on myself because it feels like the money needs to be for the family for everyone and so when and so now I'm in this place where I'm doing better economically than a lot of people in my own family I don't want to be viewed as rubbing it in their face somehow that's exactly how I feel you're right you you nailed it that that's what sometimes happens to me also and so I do worry like and I, I was talking to my husband about this I was like where, you know, after I talked to you, it was like, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to hire somebody to come in a few days a week and take care of the baby so I can work. And he was like, you mean a nanny? And I was like, but I, <laughs> no, I didn't no, want to what I said. That's exactly my reaction. I didn't want to say the word. And I was like, no, 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 I, that's not what I said. I didn't say nanny. I was like a helper. <laughs> and he's looking at me like I am nuts. I was like, I think in the beginning, I'm, I'm going to do two or three days a week just to, you know, get comfortable with it. And he was like, a part-time nanny? (laughs) No, don't say those words. (laughs) And he was like, 
babe, do whatever you got to do to make life easier. He was like, I don't, he, and he told me, he was like, I don't know why you are always in this place where you feel like you shouldn't spend money on things that you need. He was like, just do it. This is something that we have to probably continue to have a conversation about in the future, but I'm so glad that you were able to join me because from your perspective, this is very helpful. Some of the stuff that you shared with us today as, as a coach is very eye-opening and I hope that our audience can at least, you know, feel like either motivated to make some of these rich white lady decisions <laughs> or if they're already making them and feel guilty like we do. Hey, now, you know, you don't have to fucking feel guilty about yeah. it. <laughs> and I will say I feel guilty about these things now for about 2.5 seconds and then I'm, <laughs> I'm past it and I'm like, OK, like I made this money and I'm yeah. entitled you to spend it. this money yeah. <laughs> the way that I think is appropriate. So absolutely. So where can people find you? Um, I'm at Tangia Renee in all of the places. My website is tangierene.com and you can catch me on the Skin You're In podcast coming back now in a couple of weeks here in January or that's what she did podcast, which will be back in March. So can you just give us a brief um, introduction into your coaching? Sure. So um, as I said at the top, I am a mindset mentor and wellness coach. So what that means is I work with women to help them heal their relationship with their bodies and food to beat overwhelm and create more happiness in their lives. I love it. And you're also a person who lives a bicultural life. You know, you're like you said True. before, Latina and black, married to a Mexican man. Mm -hmm. So you have the, the full experience of what living that diferente life is all about. And I'm so happy that we had your perspective here on the show. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to my guest, Tangia Rene Estrada. And thank you so much for listening. Hey, don't forget, by the way, if you haven't done so, please leave me a review. If you're able to do that in your listening platform, press those five stars and tell me why you like listening to Diferente or what you have enjoyed so far. Because even though I'm letting go of perception, I do value constructive feedback. And the five stars really help other people find us and grow with us. Also, don't forget, you can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Maribel underscore QS, as well as on my website at MaribelQS.com. 